Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! And we are going to get started this morning with a brand new message series. So, uh, to start the conversation, that was a good smattering of three woos. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Way to space it out. It's like you planned it. Uh, How many of you have been to, there's a restaurant uh, down on Division called Holiday. How many of you have been to Holiday? Okay, if you haven't been to Holiday, how many of you have ever been to Roman Candle Bakery? Yes. Okay. So this might be an interesting story for you to note. Uh, up on the screen, we, this is uh, Dwayne Sorensen, and uh, he is one of the founders of Stumptown Coffee. Uh, you may have heard of it. So he uh, has the, the Woodsman Tavern, which is down by the original Stumptown. I think that's the original Stumptown, yeah? Not of heads? Yeah, yep. And he had um, the Roman Candle Bakery, which had a pizza oven. It was this whole thing. And then Dwayne had like this this thing happen in his life where he was like, I'm not going to, it's kind of like hard partying. And along with deciding not to drink anymore, he also decided to move to a plant-based diet. So what he did was he just kind of shut down Roman Candle for a while, totally renovated it. And now everything on the menu is plant-based. It's all juices. It's all vegan, uh, vegetarian. It's delicious. It's great food. But what's interesting, what makes it a fascinating story, is that someone has a business that wasn't doing poorly, it was doing fine. Roman Candle was a well-known bakery, was doing well, had good pizza, and he decided through personal conviction what was happening to shut down shop, to change it all up, and to move it into this totally different avenue. And the reason why I bring up that story is because it's one that I heard uh, recently And I thought, what makes people change? I mean, we just started 2019. And maybe some of you have resolutions or you have things that you want to do or try in the new year. And usually new things that you want to try involves change. You're shifting something from how you usually behave or how you usually act to something new. And if that was easy, more of us would do it. But change is hard. Unless you're an Enneagram 7. Then you love it too much. Calm down. (laughs) But for most of us, for most of us, change is hard. It's difficult. We're not usually looking to change up our routines or our patterns of behavior. And so this morning, as we start off a new message series, that's the question that I want to start with. And that's the one that I want you to hold on to. What does it take for someone to change? And what does it take for you to change? Do you change? As you kind of look and evaluate your life over the last months, six months, a year, do you have any shifts that you can kind of look back and reflect on and say, yeah, I used to kind of operate in this way, and then I moved to this thing? Because I think that is going to be helpful for the rest of this morning. All right, here's what we're talking about. Our new message series is called Revisiting Paul, because we are going to look at the New Testament at Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a majority of the New Testament, and more recently, uh, when people talk about people in the Bible, Paul is not a fave. Uh, Some of you might be like, what? I've never heard of this before. I love Paul. That's great. 
Um, you can keep on loving Paul. I'm not going to try and make you hate Paul so you can love him again or move you in any kind of way. But what I'm interested in is how do we not end up like Thomas Jefferson? Are you guys familiar with the Jefferson Bible? Yeah, it's, it's pretty well known. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, basically, he's like, I like these teachings of Jesus, like I appreciate Jesus, but there's a bunch of other stuff that I don't think is helpful. So he took a penknife and he just cut out sections of the Bible. And it's known as the Jefferson Bible. You can see it. He just took out the stuff he didn't really like um, to like really just distill it down to like, this is the good stuff that we should keep. You write one little declaration of independence and you are like, I can do anything. <laughs> um, the reason why I think uh, that this isn't particularly helpful is because sometimes the things that make us most uncomfortable Sometimes the things that are the most challenging, we find the things that are most helpful for our growth there. Now, what I'm not saying is that everything you disagree with, one day you will agree with and it will change you. No, 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 no. But removing voices that disagree with us, removing different viewpoints is not helpful or healthy for us. Uh, see, I don't know, maybe the political process in our country the last couple of years. When you remove a train of thought, when you stick in news that is only about one political party, it's not helpful to understand that there is humanity on the other side of your arguments or your beliefs. So how do we understand humanity? How do we understand their beliefs? Not so that we agree with every single one of them, but so that we understand that people are primarily entirely complex. Let's put it this way. Your brains are wired in this room right now and in every social situation to sort and to identify people as possible threats, possible friends, people that you agree with, people that you don't. And what that means is if you understand yourself as a human being, would you say that you are simplistic or complex? I mean, I'd hope complex. If you say simplistic, I would say, I don't know that you're you're giving yourself enough credit. You're a complex person. You have different moods and different feelings. On any given day, you can feel something totally different. And yet, when most people in the world see you, they don't have time for your complexity. They have their own complexity to deal with and the complexity of hundreds and hundreds of other people around them that they're working and doing. So for survival's sake, we usually reduce complexity to simplicity so that we can function in the world. Now, the helpful part of that is it's good for survival. We can keep on functioning as human beings in the world. The bad part of that is we tend to reduce people down to very simple ideas. They don't capture their humanity. They don't really get at who they are. Uh, this last week, uh, we went out to the snow with a couple of friends. And late at night, someone brought like that little card game where you ask questions like that are supposed to like get conversation going, um, which sometimes I love and sometimes I'm like, I know what you're trying to do. Let's not. Uh, but I was game for this one. It was fun. And one of my favorite questions I was asked, I still think about, was what is uh, the most redeeming quality of the person you like the least? I thought, oh, man, that's hard. But what it's doing is it's causing you to take the simplicity that you've reduced a human being to, and let's be honest and fair here, 
usually for the sake of survival and safety. It's the fuel you needed to get healthy separation from that person. To be in close relationship with that person would not be healthy or helpful for you. That's good that you got separation. But can you look back on that person and see some aspect of their complexity and their humanity? This is good practice for being, I would say, a Christian. A follower of Christ isn't given the luxury of reducing anyone to simplistic terms that they can reject. So, we don't have to do it all at once, but it's good in revisiting Paul and looking at this complex person to say, what are the different things that made him a human being, influenced his writings and who he was, not just as a Bible study idea, but rather as a practice for engaging with people all around you that you may want to reduce his simplicity to reject and dissociate from. How do we get more into that? So what are some of the problems with Paul? Some of you are like, I have no idea. Um, all right, well, let's look at some of them. Uh, some of them, negative view of women. There's a number of the writings of Paul that says women are not permitted to speak in church, that men should be in leadership. We're going to have a whole Sunday where we look just at that. Uh, another problem with Paul is negative views of the LGBTQ community. Paul talks about homosexuality, and that's going to be a whole Sunday where we look at that. How do we understand this word in the Greek that doesn't exist in our language until the 1900s? How do, how do we understand that? The other thing we want to look at, was he anti-Semitic? He had a lot of thoughts about Jewish people, um, which I would say is, is interesting, and we'll, we'll talk more about. Paul himself was Jewish. It's, it's unlikely he was anti-Semitic. And was he pro-slavery? Uh, Paul has kind of a long treatise on how slaves are supposed to interact with their slaveholders. So was he endorsing the concept of slavery? Um, that's another Sunday that we're going to look at. It's who was Paul and how was he writing in this? These kinds of writings and these verses, which are used often in our society as weapons to kind of silence conversations, have created a lot of people to say, I don't have time for this. If I'm going to read anything in the Bible, I'm reading Jesus and that's it. And as far as reading things in the Bible, that's a good one. I encourage that. You should do that. Uh, but what can we learn from one of the earliest followers who, as we're going to look at today, had a radical life change, was heading in one direction and totally shifted because of the person of Jesus. If nothing else, that's incredibly rare, and I think it's an attribute that's worth looking at and worth studying if we hope to be people of change at any point in our lives. So let's get into it. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to look at Acts 7 to start, then we're going to spend most of our time in Acts 9. Uh, but these are the stories kind of earliest of Saul is the name that we'll look at in Paul. Uh, some people believe that Saul changed his name after a conversion. We'll look at it a bit to Paul. Other people are like, it was just, it was either one. He would be called Saul or Paul. It kind of changed based on where he was. But so you don't get confused. We're going to look at 8, Acts 7, 57 to verse 60. Um, so this is at Stephen. Stephen was one of the earliest followers of Jesus and was being called to kind of give account for like, what are you doing um, by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, to say, why are you going around talking about Jesus in this way? And if you're confused on why would there be so much beef there, what's happening with this belief in Jesus and before, a number of the Jews and the leading Jews fully rejected the idea that Jesus would have been the promised Messiah that was talked about in their Bible 
what we would call the First Testament or the Old Testament. Um, and if you're like, but it's Jesus. How could that not be the Messiah? Um, something that was really helpful for me is a number of years ago in seminary, I got to go to a synagogue and we got to kind of learn about it. And I talked to the rabbi and I was like, so tell me about that. Why do you believe that Jesus wasn't the Messiah? And he said, the fact we're having this conversation proves he's not. Meaning that the belief that he was saying about the Messiah was that when the Messiah comes, it won't be up for debate. I would say in a lot of how uh, Christians and evangelical Christianity has talked about the version of the second coming of Christ, if someone came you and told you as a Christian, like, yeah, Jesus came back, you'd be like, no, he didn't. And they're like, why not? Like, because we're talking about it right now. If he came back, we'd all know. That was the Jewish vi version or the vision of the Messiah. So for them, the fact that there was a debate meant that Jesus was clearly not the Messiah. And so they were taking this as kind of a, a threat to their beliefs, their system, their understanding of who God was. And at this point with Stephen, one of the earliest believers, they were sentencing him to death by stoning because of his beliefs about Christ. So it says here, as they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Um, he died. I, I know that, uh, you know, let's just be clear. I didn't want any of you to be like, huh, that's a weird way to take a bunch of rocks. Um, <laughs> that's a euphemism. Uh, Stephen's real dead. Uh, but what this does here is it says that Saul was present at what it was called the first martyrdom. Stephen would have been understood to be the first martyr of Christianity. He died for his belief in Jesus Christ. And Saul is there, and the laying the coats at his feet means that he is participating, and he is endorsing this. Um, and if you'd say, well, why would Saul do that? Uh, Saul, Paul, is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were uh, a group of people and religious kind of leaders and teachers that were really dedicated to the Jewish religion. Pharisees really kind of took off after uh, this time called the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, the book of Maccabees, which isn't in most uh, Protestant Bibles, but you can find, is a story about how this Maccabean Revolt happened about 150 years before the time of Jesus. And um, in that was kind of the rise of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, like, took their religion very, very seriously. How seriously, did you just rhetorically ask me? <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, they created 248 commandments to keep them from ever getting close to breaking any of the Ten Commandments. And then, if that wasn't enough, they created 365 prohibitions to also kind of further insulate the Ten Commandments. They're like, by the time you get too close to the Ten Commandments, like you've already broken them. So we're going to create all these rules and structure around there so you don't break them. And this was Paul. He had dedicated himself to preserving this idea, the Jewish idea of who God was, and the further Pharisaical rules and laws that became, at the time of Jesus, you did them. They weren't optional. They weren't like, hey, these are just kind of helpful so we don't break the 10. Like, that's the big deal. No, they were as serious as the 10 commandments. And more than this, 
Paul's father was a Pharisee. So we got generational Phariseeism going on here, which I want you to think about the people that you know that kind of do the same thing that their parents have done. There's a generational thing that goes on there. It's not just a job you do. You're protecting your version of family. You're protecting a version of your father. You're protecting a whole lineage that you see yourself as a part of. Um, and as someone who, who my father, my mother weren't pastors, I don't understand it in the same way. But I know from other people that are multiple generations of farmers or multiple generations of pastors, there's a different way that you engage in a profession that your father did or your grandfather did. There's a bit more protection to it than just like, I don't know, I'll do this Pharisee thing. We'll see how it works out. Paul was really committed. He was in this. And this was something that wasn't just worth pursuing for himself. This was worth protecting, even if it meant the loss of life of someone else. This thing was so important to him. All right, so now we're going to jump to Acts 9 as we further kind of get to know the person of Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I have to say, that's one of my favorite lines in the Bible because uh, I just love the idea that like walking by himself, he's still just whispering, just like, oh, I'll kill those Christians. Um, it's like a cartoon character. Why I ought to... Uh, He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, uh, interesting note, belonging to the way is the way that the earliest Christians would have identified themselves. They didn't call themselves Christians. Christians was actually an insulting term that was used against them that was later adopted, but they would have identified themselves as followers of the way, that Jesus told us the way, the truth, and life were followers of this way. Uh, Whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you can see that Paul is getting letters, he's delivering them, but he also has a sense of purpose in this, that this is, if we want to continue doing this thing and doing it well, it means the elimination of Christians or these followers of the way, these people that are taking on who Jesus was. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Just a quick pause there. A lot of times when people talk about hearing the voice of God, um, which is, you know, something that a lot of people have, like, I've heard an audible voice or I've heard a voice that seemed audible to me, uh, which is a big deal. If it's something that happens to people, if it's something that hasn't happened to you, that's okay. It's not like promise that everyone will receive that or will hear it in that particular way. But I think we can all agree there's something unique about having a voice of God that is audible that the people with you hear it too. If the people around you are like, wait, you heard that too? I didn't see anything, but I heard that. And it's followed by someone going blind. (laughs) Some real, real just went down, right? Something happened that's worthy of like a full time out pause. Like, what was that? 
what just happened here? And especially the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Continuing on in verse 10, it says, In Damascus there is the disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's super ominous. Uh, (laughs) Continuing on the last little bit here. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, which is so beautiful. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. To to stop there for a second. I love so much in that story how God shows up to Ananias and like, hey, you're going to go to Judas' house. It's on Straight Street. I'm not going to Google map it for you, but you know, like that house with Judas. And there's this man there. He's from Tarsus. His name's Saul. And Ananias is like, wait, what? (laughs) I love that God's introducing him to like, oh, the one that's trying to kill us. Yeah, I heard. I know who that Saul of Tarsus is. I'm familiar with that person. I love so much that moment. Because going back to what we're talking about, simplicity and complexity, there's a simplistic version of Paul that actually even Paul or Saul may have believed about himself, about his life, about his purpose, about what he was there for. And what God was doing by showing up to him on the road and by what he was doing with Ananias and saying, you need to go meet him, is to introduce themselves to a brand new version of Paul and Saul who I would say was there and true the whole time. This version of Paul already existed, but it was one that people had not experienced firsthand. And there are moments and times where God comes to us and says, no, 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 I'm sending you. I'm sending you to that family dinner. I'm sending you to Thanksgiving. I'm sending you to your coworkers. I'm sending you... Who else is going to go and have these conversations with people about the complexity of the world, about the nature of who Jesus Christ is and the true way that God is trying to move and work through this world that isn't about hatred, it isn't about exclusion, it isn't about further defining who's in and who's out. And there's sometimes we're like, but I don't want to go hang out with them. I don't want to go have another conversation with them. What's beautiful is that in the invitation is an invitation to meet someone you don't believe exists. And that person may not even exist to them yet. But is it possible that through you and through the work of God, they can become familiar with a new version of who they are and who they were called to be? I think so much we we spend our limited time deciding who's worth hanging out with and who's not. 
And sometimes God comes in and calls us to say, I know they're in the off list, but I'm putting them back on for your sake and for their sake. How do we see people again, sometimes for the first time? And how do we let what we see as the eyes of Christ come and say, no, no, this is who they truly are, become a mirror to them so that they can see for the first time who they truly are? I wonder what shifted in Saul when Ananias laid his hands and said, Brother Saul. That's so powerful. He didn't come in from across the room being like, hey, God sent me, but I'm keeping my distance, all right? I know who you are and what you've done. He came right into that place. That's beautiful and brave. And more than anything, it's transformative. It's transformative to who Paul is. The question that I ultimately want us to sit with is what causes a person or what possesses a person to change the course of their life? When you're moving in one direction, when he's going to murder Christians and then he becomes a Christian who ends up writing the majority of what we call the New Testament today, that's a big shift. What causes that to happen? What shifts have to happen in our lives? I think a lot of us would say, because I know that I would say, well, look, I'll be on the road to Damascus, Oregon, and if God shows up to me on that road in this way, oh, I'm good. Literally, whatever you want to do. I'll change anything. If you show up to me like that, I'll change anything. And I guess what I have to sit with is, is it possible God already has? Is it possible that God's already shown up in your lives in those kinds of ways? And maybe we doubted it, maybe we questioned it, or maybe we moved on too quickly. That maybe we haven't heard the audible voice. Maybe the people with us haven't heard the audible voice, but we've had an experience of who God is. We've had an experience of this world as it should be a place that sees and values all people, that comes to tell and proclaim the good news of Christ to everyone, not just some, but everyone. And we're like, yes, that's what it's all about. But then we've forgotten. We've fallen asleep. Maybe we haven't ever been healed of our blindness, and we've kind of continued on in the same path. Maybe you don't need something new. Maybe you need to be reminded of the thing that's already true, the transformation that's already happened, the thing that's already shifted within you. And part of what I think helps that and what I want to close with today is this. Last night was a pretty big windstorm around here. Um, I, how many of you did not sleep through it? How many of you, like it woke you up, the wind was? That's great. All right, how many of you slept right through it and you're like, what, what windstorm? Uh, I love that. Uh, how many of you knew when you woke up, you're like, oh, something happened last night? Did you guys see the things on the ground? I came out to my car, and I thought there was a dead raccoon by the passenger side. It was like a, just a big uh, pine tree branch that had blown off down by the car. It freaked me out. Um, I don't know why I'm so scared of dead raccoons. I actually, that's my, it's <laughs> the real thought I'm going to wrestle with. What's interesting is what causes some trees in big windstorms, some trees are fine and some fall over, some tumble. 
And I was actually reading about there's certain kinds of trees that they say can withstand hurricane force winds. Hurricane force winds are winds that are going at 76 miles an hour. Now, you would think that to withstand that kind of force, we have to make something as strong and as unmovable as possible to withstand a storm like that. But for all you arborists out there, you know that's not true, is it? What are the trees that can withstand the storm? Deep roots that go in and a high flexibility up top. Deep roots. So they actually are, have been saying that a lot of the reason why we see more and more trees falling down isn't because of the weakness of the trees, but in our urban settings, how limited we've allowed the root beds to, do, to, to go. That ultimately, that flexibility, which is good and they need, gets compromised because the roots can't go far enough, and like a lever, it just falls over enough roots. If the roots have been allowed to move, that kind of flexibility is actually a mark of maturity in trees. Come on. It's so obvious. You know where I'm going here. <laughs> Oftentimes, when we encounter people who are older, we know and experience them because we are very sure about what they believe and what they think. They know that they know that they know that these things are true and these things aren't. But I don't know that that's a true mark of maturity. What Paul had given his life to was this beautiful power of the good news of who God is. I don't think Paul became a Pharisee to kill people. It's not why he got in it. He truly believed that God's shalom, this peace for all people, this beautiful picture of who God created every person to be, this was worth giving his life to. And because he had let his roots get down so deep in that beautiful picture of how the world is meant to be and who God created us, to be, it took an encounter with Jesus Christ to say, oh, there it is. I would say this thing that we see as incredible change is actually fulfillment of a promise. I don't know that Paul changed. I think Paul got back to his roots. And a lot of the things that we can experience in our lives of people that have deep roots that understand the nature of how this world was meant to be, of who God has called us to be, and the nature of who Jesus Christ is, the way that Christ was leading us to be, can mean that we show up in all kinds of places and we can entertain all kinds of ideas. We can have conversations with all kinds of people because ultimately we know that the things that are driving down our roots are what matters. It's not the winds that are blowing up here. I would love it so much that if the most mature and the most flexible people in our current political climate were Christians. And sadly, I don't think that's what we see. I actually think that Christians are known more for their inflexibility instead of their flexibility. I think we have grown up a generation after generation of Christians with long, tall trunks and shallow roots, who inflexibility is necessary for survival, but it is not aiding their health or the health of the world around us. Flexibility, the ability to sit with people with different beliefs and to hear them and to break bread with them is not a sign of immaturity, but maturity. It's a sign of flexibility. It's a sign of understanding the bigger picture. Now, the caveat to this, 
if you are in a place where you are being consistently damaged by people that are close to you and they are saying hurtful or abusive things to you, I'm not saying go hang out with them all the time, for heaven's sakes. There's this kind of like subcurrent in Christianity that like two true Christians are like Stephen the martyr. And you just need to go sit at the table of like abhorrent belief systems and suffer the stones of racism and sexism and all the other horrible isms. And then you will have suffered for the Lord. No, no. At a certain point, you need to say this isn't happening here. You need to create that kind of healthy space to not continue to putting yourself in that position, but we should have the ability to walk in any room, to have any conversation with any person, because we understand how deep and how wide the roots of Christ go. It's a part of the soil, and it's part of the makeup from the very beginning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of, of sending, like we do every week. But my prayer this week for you all is deeper and richer of of 2019 and a version of 2019 where we become the kind of people that we wish the people around us were. That we lead by example in the kinds of conversation, the way we hold our conversations and our beliefs. That we become people of deep roots and high flexibility. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the life of Paul. God, I thank you for the example it serves to us of someone who was moving in a totally different direction and God was willing to change the course of his actions and his life. God, I pray that we can see, God, the way that that was actually a fulfillment of the beliefs that Paul had all along. And God, I pray that we would similarly become people of action like Paul. That, God, we would show up in difficult places. God, we would be willing to speak out. We would be willing to share and contribute our voice to a world that so desperately needs it. That, God, the name of you, of Jesus Christ, would be able to go out and be a mark of maturity and flexibility and acceptance in ways that so sadly it has not. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So would you stand? My prayer is that you will go out today being in the same way as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit for incredible flexibility and grace and love in all places and all ways. And may you see the incredible complexity of the people around you created in the image of God and reject the simplistic narratives wherever they wear their ugly heads. Amen and amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.